The Guardian. Welcome to the April edition of Media Talk USA from The Guardian. I'm Jeff Jarvis. We took the month of March off here at Media Talk USA. I'm delighted that some people noticed, and I want to thank both of you. But we're back in our CUNY studio in New York, ready for some feisty fisticuffs over the future of news. We'll solve business riddles for blogs, CNN, and Rupert, too. Media Talk USA from Guardian.co.uk. Joining me in the studio are two folks who've been having at it online, and we'll talk about this. In the left corner is Felix Salmon, blogger for Reuters, having earlier blogged for The Late Portfolio, and for Rubini Global Economics. Blogging is his life. Welcome, Felix. Thank you very much. And in the right corner is Henry Blodgett. In his prior life, Henry was a leading analyst of the tech bubbly days at Merrill Lynch. Then, after some back and forth with the SEC, he left the analyst world, and now Henry is CEO and editor of Business Insider, a new online-only biz site. So, welcome, Henry. Welcome. Thank you. So, gentlemen, we begin with you. You had a tweet feud last year about analysts becoming journalists, and you've come out of a blog boxing match over the economics of news online. Though it would be fun to replay all the body blows, uh, we don't have any video, so instead, why don't you each summarize your positions about the blog biz? Because I think in this discussion, there are some valuable insights and lessons for those of us trying to make a business out of the web. Felix, since you started it, you first. (laughs) Um, My opinion is that there is a low-cost, high-volume blog business model, and it's exemplified by people like Gorka Media, where they get as many page views as they possibly can and sell them at relatively mass market rates. And as long as you have a small staff, you can make money doing that. The alternative is to do what Nick Denton, the CEO of Gorka, originally intended to do, which was something a little bit more targeted, and to really take advantage of the fact that you can find niche audiences online and monetize them because they're a particularly valuable audience at much higher rates than you can for the mass market. And that's what I think Henry's trying to do at Business Insider with much higher ad rates than you find elsewhere. And I think that if you do that, then you need to be a little bit a little bit higher brow and you need to be a little bit more respectable because that's really what the, the advertisers demand. And that's how you get the higher big bucks. Henry? Well, let me just say that I think that Felix and I generally agree, which is the most important thing is to create a site that has great content that lots of people want to come read. Obviously, our audience at Business Insider is a very high-value audience because they tend to be people interested in business, so it's very helpful on the advertising side, and we've been able to command advertising rates that are much higher than a general interest site, which is great. You still need volume to be able to support the business with advertising. There's just no question about that. And the blog business is extraordinarily competitive. And one of the things that we've tried to do from the beginning, especially as we watch traditional media companies implode where the old model just does not work anymore, is make sure that we produce content that is first native to the internet, that really takes advantage of what the internet can do that a newspaper can't or a newswire can't or a TV station can't, and then use that to make an actual business out of it. Because if you look at all the other media, they built news businesses. And some cases with newspapers and TV, they were extraordinarily profitable businesses. I think this business online is going to be much tougher. But we have done that over three years. We've really gotten close to a self-sustaining online business model. And obviously, there are different decisions that different editors would make and so forth. But I think we are on our way, as is Gawker Media, to building a sustainable new sort of news business. And I think that's good for the world, at least 
least I hope it is. Well, I mean, Nick's profitable at Gawker. I think he is he and has been for it, right? But he has been for some time and, and, and moving up. So is the essence of this disagreement, not that I want to concentrate on that, but just, just to understand it, kind of a quantity versus quality thing and how that relates to the ad rates that you can get? I think so. And I think that when Henry talks about the blog world being very competitive, um, I think it's worth drilling down a bit into exactly what that means because when you're running ads, you're not really competing against other blogs. You're competing against the whole universe of enormous universe of inventory you out there. You are competing there, for audience and, and links and clicks and all that, aren't you? Right. But what I'm saying is the, who you're competing with is not just blogs. It's you know the New York Times, it's the Wall Street Journal, it's the, and it's cnnmoney.com, it's daily finance, it's all of these properties on the web. And so I think that to just sort of say that the blog space is competitive is it kind of Oh, I'm not saying that at all. The whole space is is totally competitive. But I, I mean, I think you can step back and you can say, look, if the New York Times shut down the print version today, the website would be lose gobs of money. And so you can say, well, that's a terrible thing, and society is worse off, and we've all got to turn it into a nonprofit or whatever it is to save it and, and so forth, because society is going to go to hell in a handbasket without the full New York Times staff. I actually completely disagree with that. I think that, in fact, what's going on in the news business is that the Internet has knocked down all these barriers, and we suddenly have a huge overcapacity of news production, and a lot of that is going to go away as a result of this. But if the New York Times were to go online only, what they would have to do is shrink their newsroom by two-thirds. They would still have an awesome website because they produce great content. The website generates $175 million of revenue a year. That is a real business. It's just kind of a bummer business relative to the $1.5 billion business. Well, small is the new big. Right. You can't be huge anymore because you're not running monopolies anymore. That's right. That's life. So my point is the New York Times is a great online business, but they would have to change their whole newsroom radically if they wanted to survive that way. And obviously, Felix is writing for Reuters. Reuters has a wonderful financial terminal business that spins off billions of dollars a year. It's completely irrelevant to Reuters whether Felix makes any money, whether Speaking he has of which, any Speaking how do they make money on you? They do they make, make money, money on, you? on you? No. So why do they have you? Because it's absolutely crucial for any news organization to have an interesting and vibrant website, I think. that's And it's important from... So you're meant to draw heat to the website, to draw <laughs> audience to the website and attention to the website? Is that... And, and, and to bring Reuters in, into the sort of broader conversation, because although it has a very strong brand name within the financial world, um, a lot of people don't really think about it so, so much. You can, but, but let's, you, know, you can, in essence, be off there kind of having fun. I am, I am Where, off there. Whereas Henry's trying to feed his family. <laughs> And my employees' families. And your employees, and there's 30 families. of us. Out of nothing. 30 of us. That's right. I mean, we've, re- we've built a business that supports almost 30 people, including a good-sized newsroom for a small organization like this. And I'm very proud of what we've done. And, and so your, our, your point back, back with Felix was that, that you're finding success at higher CPMs, higher ad rates, because of the specialization you do? Why? Well, we definitely we appeal to the business audience that is a higher ad rate business. There's no question about it. It's not as broad a business. We're never going to be as big as the Huffington Post or, or the New York Times because we're catering, obviously, you to a much— You probably don't want to be. We couldn't be. If we did, we would suddenly be talking about Britney Spears all day— all day, because that's what does Instead it. Instead of just and some of the day. Instead of some of the day. The business of Britney Spears. Um, but the, you know, so that, that business works. It's definitely higher ad rates. And Felix also brought up very intelligently the idea is, are there other revenue streams that can help support right. this? so that's the next one. Absolutely. Conferences work. 
There may be some subscription businesses. Obviously, the Wall Street Journal has a nice subscription business. It's very hard, and and we're we're looking at that. We have one in beta now that we're trying to develop, and we think can become a, a paywall comes to Business Insider, perhaps. It's not a paywall for the general news. Right. I don't. I have not seen any way to separate premium quality news from not premium quality news. News is everywhere. I mean, let's get back to this overcapacity issue. There's way too much of it. And why would you want to stop people? But traders, as evidenced by Felix's employer and Bloomberg, which is the second most successful media company in the world with gobs of journalists everywhere, is basically selling a 15-minute edge on its content to traders who can make millions of dollars trading on that information. So we have a lot of traders reading our site. One of the things we're experimenting with is can we come up with a service that they will pay for that ultimately then fuels the website as well. Tom Gloser, the head of uh, Thomson Reuters and your boss, Felix, has said that the highest value for his content, and he means this, is in the first three milliseconds. We have a huge business in high-frequency trading, and none of that has anything to do with news, really. They're big into looking in, into clever little algorithms, which can computers which read the news and it never goes through a human mind, and then start, they, they trade and there are black boxes. But yeah, that that's not something where a blog can add any value. I can tell you that. So here at CUNY, I teach entrepreneurial journalism. I believe the future is entrepreneurial more than institutional. Uh, my students probably have to make their own jobs more and more and more, and I tell them that they can do this. Am I leading them astray? No, you're not. And in fact, it's critical to success in this new world that you are not only producing great content, that's important. And by the way, there are lots of different types of great content online. You can be a great packager of stuff that you find on the internet. Gawker is excellent at that. We are good at that a lot of the time. You can tell people stuff they don't know, break news the old-fashioned way. People love that. You can do analysis and commentary, which Felix is spectacular at doing. So there are lots of different ways to add a lot of value. But in addition to that, you've got to be entrepreneurial. It's completely critical. And basically what you're asking your writers to do and your students at CUNY is it's not enough to go out and find something or create some content. You've got to make sure people read it. Well, one of the things about entrepreneurialism and journalism is that I think we're moving quite rapidly towards the world of individual brands, which then get attached to slightly bigger corporate brands. So for instance, you know, I have my own individual brand, which is now part of the Reuters idea. The Atlantic online has done an amazing job of buying up a bunch of like brand name bloggers and putting them on their website and using them to burnish the Atlantic brand name. The opposite of what used and, to happen in media. Uh, exactly. And and even at the New York Times, we're now seeing an increasing number of brand name stars who they're really pushing. This is new in journalism. I mean, it always used to happen in television, but it never used to happen in print so much. I mean, there always used to be a couple. And, and one of, I think, one of the sort of disagreements that I had with, with Henry was over the way that he treated, you know, one of his biggest brand name stars, John Carney, who was helping improve the value of the business insider as a whole, whereas Henry seemed to have this idea that he should be judged only on, like, the number of individual page views that he got. Well, let me say that we haven't commented publicly at all on that. And so Felix believes he has a picture of the situation. (laughs) I am more power to him. But the company, we have never said anything. John's great. We miss him. 
It's too bad. Um, but what I would say is there have always been stars in journalism. Let's be serious. Big newspapers have big columnists. They have their own brand, their own picture. As Felix said, in TV, it's incredibly important. Felix is excellent. He's definitely an asset to Reuters. What I would say, though, is that— Would you hire if, Felix? Oh, I would love to hire Felix. The question is whether we can afford Felix. We don't have this <laughs> massive global terminal that's throwing off money. You know, it'd be nice. But hire 20 Felixes. Right. It, it would be good. But the my point would be that Felix definitely has a brand. But if Felix were to say, you know what, Reuters, I'm tired of working for the man. I'm going out by myself and put up the Felix Salmon blog, my guess is Felix would be taking a major salary cut based on whatever he wanted to do, however he wanted to monetize it. Ads, subscriptions, very hard to imagine that we're going to get into the $150,000 right, a year that I Whether you work for a big company or whether you Felix work for makes. a small company, you're not going to do it. You, the, the brand, the individual brand matters, but to make it a business, you're probably going to have to work in something larger. Well, that's right. And so you go to Aaron, Aaron Burnett, megastar on CNBC, Maria Bartiromo, megastar, hugely valuable to the brand. They have their own brands, everything else. If they put up a website, they would do much worse than the millions of dollars a year they make talking on CNN. And so the same is true for a lot of journalists. So it is definitely the organization matters a lot. And the direct traffic to the New York Times, for example, is critical. So just to wrap up here, if you ran Business Insider, you're saying, what's the one thing that you would advise doing? One thing I would do, I think, is try and concentrate a little bit more on the overarching brand, the Business Insider brand. Which is kind of the opposite of what you just said. Well, no, I'm saying that what you should do is you should, you know, be happy to hire stars in order to bolster the value of the news brand. You know, the New York Times has a very incredibly valuable news brand. And one of the ways that you, if you're an online startup, one of the ways that you get, develop a brand for yourself is by hiring brand journalists and stars. And so rather than go into the, the slightly destructive calculus that, that Henry did on, on his website about if you are going to hire a journalist, they need to make three times their salary in page view revenues. I would say, let's let's not try and work this out on a sort of in, immediate cash flow basis, but let's try and work this out on a brand value basis. No, and so what I would say is I'm, I'm glad, Felix, you're offering management consulting services. That's great. We may <laughs> sire it, and maybe actually that salary will be bigger than, than the writing. But I would say, again, if you do want to carry your freight as a journalist. And obviously, when you have a new company, nobody is going to carry their freight in the beginning. Media companies take a while to get profitable for a reason. You have to build up that brand to the scale that it draws people. But at least understand what the economics are. And one of the things, to be totally honest, that we've had a hard time doing over time is finding journalists who have worked in print for a long time who can make the transition successfully. Because this medium is very much right between broadcasting, where it is real-time, you're on thing, and print, where you're producing like these the things you that, that last. Yeah. So, so that's a very tough transition for a lot of print journalists, and I totally understand why they don't want to make it. Onward. So now some media news in brief. Quick hits. Did you buy an iPad? I did, but I'm probably going to return it. I just don't see the use case for it, whether it's TV 2.0 or laptop light or iPhone on steroids. I'm about to perform a ritual reboxing and take it back to the store. So far, no one, especially not media companies, have shown me a reason to keep it. What about you two? Felix, you were uh, showing off your iPad earlier. I, I'm a fan of my iPad. I Every time I use it and then go back to my iPhone, I'm like, oh my God, this thing is so small and pokey and I can't use this anymore. I've got It's so much easier to use than the laptop just when you're out and about. I think that the killer app is the app. I think the way that 
it's just a screen and nothing else, and it just becomes whatever app you're, you're using. The number of apps made for the iPad is is tiny. Still. But we're going to have thousands very, very soon. And Part of my concern about the app world, though, is that it puts content back into a fence. The Time Magazine app is god-awful, and it's like a PDF, and you can't comment or link out the, or the link apps, in. The apps will get better, and they're not webby. This is not the web, and this is one That's of the reasons. Fear. This is one of the reasons that the print world loves the iPad so much, because and 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 frankly, advertisers as well. If and when this catches on, what you'll find is that advertisers will go back to the glossy magazine world of having something shiny and high production values, in which they have complete control over, and they will pay a lot more money for that than they will for a banner mm, ad on business and so. Henry, uh, do you? have one? Are you going to build apps for them? What's your view? I've tried one. I took it home. We bought one in, in the shop to check it out and test run it, and it is unbelievably slick and exciting and everything else, and the next morning I'm with you, Jeff. I, really? I don't know. I have an iPhone, which I'm happy with, except for the terrible battery, and I am very happy with my Power Mac laptop, whatever it is. I don't see the need for a third one. I produce content, and I consume, and I can write on the iPhone. So for me, it doesn't work. But I, I think where I totally disagree with Felix and where I think, Jeff, you should sleep well at night is the idea that for news and publications, the idea that we're going to move to an app world, I just think is nuts. You don't I think don't it's going to happen? It. Absolutely not. So and publishers possibly, want to do it, but what, the audience won't go for it? Or? The audience won't go for it. To me, the app is the equivalent of CD-ROM. CD-ROM, yeah. oh, yeah. news is saved. People are going to download all this great stuff, and oh, you can do video and pictures and text, and it'll all link together and everything else. Look, the advantage of the web is, A, it's just really convenient to click all around, to comment, to go back and forth, to iterate. The apps that I have seen thus far, GQ, I look at the cover of the app, all these exciting articles. I go to click on one just to read it. Did John Edwards really jump his mistress after 30 seconds? I want to know. What did it do? It expanded the size of the cover. I finally, after tinkering around for a few minutes, figured out that, oh, to get to that article, I've got to page through one at a time. Why does GQ want me to do that? So I will sit there and consume all of these rich ads As that they, they have got, tell you that they to have do gotten it. the advertisers all lathered up about. It's so exciting. We're going to control you again. It's going to be a captive audience. Awful. So Never one publisher, it again. One publisher who is excited about the iPad is Rupert Murdoch. In Washington this week, he went on another tirade against Google, accusing them of stealing his news and telling them they won't get away with it anymore. He says all papers will have to have paywalls. But the big news from the Washington event is that, though according to his biographer, Michael Wolf, he's never touched a computer, Rupert touched a computer. It's an iPad, but it's a computer. Well, I think that – we've talked about Rupert before on the show because, of course, we talked to some British people and, 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 and he, they care about him too. But, but I think he's lost it. I think he's just plain out lost it. He's going on these tirades. He's treating Google as if it's some kind of big thief. I don't get it. Has Rupert lost it? I, I think it's a possibility that he is just completely out of touch on this issue and will never get it. I, I think the other possibility is that actually when you look at News Corp, this is a – global, diversified media company with cash flow coming out of its ears. The newspaper business is actually a relatively small business for Murdoch as much as he came from it and as excited he is about it. I think what he is trying to do with this global tirade, ranting, everything else is 
whip up the rest of the newspaper companies into all going in together and putting up those paywalls and, and so forth, and maybe we'll scare Google into throwing us some money because, by the way, I'm so rich and powerful that I can go get copyright law changed. It doesn't violate it now, but we'll just change the playing And I can do field. that because I have newspapers which still have I, some exactly megaphone right. value. I can insult the politicians all day if they don't do it. So I think it's, I, I think it's a show that he's doing, and I actually don't think newspapers are important to him, but taking the words at face value, he is, has lost it, as Felix? you say. Um, one, one thing I'd note is that the iPad is great for the Rupert Murdoch demographic. It, you don't need to learn how to use a computer in order to be able to use an iPad, and it's good for, your, you know, for people of his age and, and even for people under the age of four. You know, they, they get it very intuitively. But as for Rupert himself, um, yeah, obviously he's, he's got a beef with Google, and any time he wants, he's more than able to simply put a little thing on his robots.txt file and say, don't take my news, and then they'll stop. They're good like that. Um, certain other aggregators, like Michael Wolf, will, will ignore requests not to use your stuff, but Google won't. They'll be absolutely cool with that. So it's not entirely clear why he's shouting at them so loudly when he can just go ahead and unilaterally stop them from calling his stuff. Um, but as I think Henry's exactly right. What he wants is for everyone to follow him over the precipice, and I, it's pretty obvious they won't. So, last of the briefs, an appeals court in Washington told the FCC that it does not have the authority to regulate Internet services. This came as the FCC was telling Comcast to stop throttling a BitTorrent. And this also comes now as the FCC is revealing its grand plan for broadband access in America. Is net neutrality dead? And what does this mean for the effort to get America connected? I think it's pathetic that this country hasn't devoted more money to actually making our broadband network competitive with the best in the world. We really are looking awful in comparison to lots of Scandinavia, Asia, and, and so forth. So I think the plan of upgrading broadband everywhere is great. It's like building the interstate system back in the 50s could be the envy of the world, and instead we're just in this totally embarrassing situation. So I hope money goes to do that. That said, I think I'm in the unpopular camp on net neutrality, which is I don't understand why a company that spends tens of billions of dollars to put pipe in the ground can't say, you know what, you want to push a little bit through that pipe? We'll charge you one thing. You want to push a huge, fat HD movie file? We're going to charge you another thing. And by the way, Google, you can handle it because you got, what is it now, 10 billion of profit every year of cash flow? I think you can handle a little bit extra expense to make sure people get your stuff fast. So I don't have a lot of sympathy for the information, it's all equal, everything should be free for everybody idea. I'm, I'm much more sympathetic to the net neutrality types because you can throttle people all the way down to zero or just make it very hard for any new entrants to, to, to come into the space. And remember, the internet content isn't pushed through pipes, it's pulled through pipes. It's people at home who are paying the internet service providers who are requesting the content, and the service providers are trying to provide an internet service. And what happens is they then go off and start buying content companies and want to privilege their own subsidiaries. And it starts becoming much less of what you want when you're on the internet, which is I'm just on the internet and can get anything, and it starts saying, oh, what kind of internet are you on? Are you on the Comcast internet or on the Time Warner internet? Which and is the problem, we don't have that choice. That's, that's the point. When we have competition, right, exactly. to we me, will go to that who doesn't throttle us. That is the key, that's the key issue, is we still have this ludicrous situation where Comcast is protected in particular markets. You can't get five cable companies and five bandwidth companies, which, by the way, if you let them come in and compete with each other, prices for the big fat pipe are going to drop 
fast. So that's what we should focus on. Not See, this I, idea I, I that do you think can. we need to talk about, and, and, and we don't have time in, in this discussion, but I think there's a larger issue which you raised, which is the principles of the Internet. And if we look at Google in China, uh, Google is kind of our sole defender of principles on the Internet, and it's Google's principles. What are our principles? I, 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 was, I had the hubris to propose a, a Bill of Rights for cyberspace on my blog, but I think that's the kind of discussion we have to have. However, we don't have time, and we're going to move on to the next topic. Media Talk USA. So finally, CNN's ratings are in free fall. Larry King and Anderson Cooper in primetime are each down by about half in a year. Fox is about to have its best quarter ever. MSNBC's new opinionated strategy is working, and Rachel Maddow is sometimes beating big old Larry. This has led to a flurry of suggestions about how to fix CNN. New York University's Jay Rosen, a friend of this podcast, has suggested new shows, one in which a liberal journalist covers the right and a mirror image in which a conservative covers the left. He's also suggested another show called Fact Check. But shouldn't every new show do that? New York Times columnist Ross Douthat argues that Jon Stewart was wrong when he went on CNN's crossfire to tell them to stop yelling at each other. So he and Politico's Michael Calderon say, bring back crossfire and bring it on. Now that you've both fixed the business of blogging, can you bring your magic to CNN? What would you do for the inventor of cable news? How would you fix it? Is it fixable, Felix? I have absolutely no idea, frankly. <laughs> I'm not. I don't. I don't ever watch CNN. It's not on my radar screen. They they used to because have because you brag that you website. don't have a television. It's, it's which is really obnoxious, bragging. I think. But as you as as Henry will tell you, the the cable companies have these monopolies, these local monopolies in the U.S. And getting CNN is extremely expensive, and I just don't have that sort of spare cash lying around to watch things maybe a couple of hours a week when I have some spare time to watch the telly. I think, again, the fundamental problem is there's overcapacity now. When CNN came into existence, there was a revolutionary idea. You're going to have news 24 hours a day. There was no internet, no cable competition, nothing. Now it's everywhere. You've got many, many channels that do that. You've got hundreds of websites that get you the news. And, and CNN is good in these crises and, and so forth. But I do think that Jay's ideas are good. I think actually not being afraid to admit as a network that you have an opinion would be nice. I think part of the problem is that people sense this inauthenticity that comes with we're balanced. We don't actually inject our opinion into it. Anderson Cooper, I know you have an opinion. Let me hear it. And I not saying so is kind of a lie. That's actually, right. A lie of omission. Absolutely. I, I mean, it's this idea, again, the New York Times has these policies to all journalists. Don't ever say anything on Facebook that could ever betray the fact that you're a thinking human being with opinions about who should be president or whatever it happens to be. God forbid we shatter the illusion that journalists are objective and that there aren't editors sitting there making decisions about what you see and how to cover it. Of course there are. CNN's opinion is a good perspective to come from. They might as well be honest about it. But I think the main point is there are there's just a lot of competition. So well, this one, is an entertainment-based business. One question I have about, about the CNN thing is that we can talk a great deal about what kind of talky shows they should have. But the thing which puzzles me is why is it that when you have a Haiti earthquake or a Chile earthquake or a Kyrgyz coup or something, that those ratings are going down so much on CNN? Isn't that what, historically well, where I think people go Henry, for I think Henry news? hit it earlier, and I really had never thought about this before, but when you look at your biorhythm on Business Insider as a broadcast biorhythm, that you're on the air all day. I've never heard a blogger say that before. And it, it, once you say it, it's duh to me, but I think it's really well said. 
so that the it steals the rhythm of cable news. So cable news in the CNN view was, we're always here to tell you what's going on. Well, the web's there for that now. Whereas Fox and MSNBC, having discovered its own oeuvre, uh, are now kind of saying, that's not what we do at all. We just have opinions. Right. And, and they're good at opinions. And Glenn Beck is a master provocateur and oh, entertainer God. as much as... <sighs> So, so, what, so, so what we're saying is that CNN is losing because it's now competing with blogs and with the internet. Is that what do you think? And MSNBC and Fox right, but News. No, but no, no, no. So, I think your point about breaking the news and people are going to Twitter to find out what's happening in you know in Haiti rather than going to CNN. And in fact, CNN is encouraging them to do so because they keep on talking themselves about what's on the internet and what's online. And by the way, most people during the workday or school don't have TVs hanging in front of them. Traders do. People who work in newsrooms do. Most other people don't because they're viewed as distracting. But they sure have a broadband connection. So so you want to steal the way to a news site and figure out what's going on, especially if it's got some video, okay, kind of reduces the need to rush to a television and look at CNN. So will that reflex that is CNN's last success of, uh, as you said, Felix, when the earthquake happens, we turn to it. The reflex is now shifting to turning to the internet. I mean, that's what you do because you don't have a TV, but is, is that sufficient? I think Henry is right. Most people can't turn to a TV when an earthquake hits because it's quite unlikely that they're going to have a TV to hand, whereas they're much more likely to have their iPad to So hand. that changes the habit. It changes the habit. And then the other thing that's going on is that you still have a lot of mainstream news organizations that still have a very old world view of, well, has our journalist confirmed that with three sources? Because until they do, we are not going to report it. Meanwhile, you have Twitter exploding with on-the-ground reports of this, that, and the other thing. Sure, some of them are inaccurate, but it's talk. It's the same way news has always spread in the real world before any media. It's people talking. It gets corrected as you go. The facts get interjected. Why would you sit there and wait for CNN well, or, or worse, somebody else when, when to you watch it. CNN and MSNBC when the, when the story is going on, they loop the same video over and over and over again, and you get a sense of staleness, and you, and, you, which is ironic. And, and they choose the self-appointed experts to put on. So when you do get a breaking news like, say, Michael Jackson dying, not only is CNN late to the story, but when they do get to the story, you have to listen to a whole bunch of idiots talking about it when you can choose for yourself who to read about it when you're online. So is CNN like, you know, the Boston Globe? Could it die? It could die. I think that it could certainly be fixed in a lot of ways, a lot of things that could be done with it. I think they should talk about merging it with MSNBC. If the idea is that this is the liberal news network to counter the awesomely profitable and successful Fox News, and let's be honest about that, it's an incredible cash machine, maybe they merge it with somebody. Maybe you merge it with ABC News or CBS News and give it, you know, add a new flair to that because that's a business that's in trouble too in a lot of ways or at least changing. So again, my thesis with news is far from the world going to hell in a handbasket because the internet is putting pressure on old business models. What the internet has done is revealed that we have a massive overcapacity of news production. And what you are going to see is a lot of that overcapacity go away. I think so. I think, I think the, the big change in business models in news is not about advertising models, and it's not about paywalls, certainly. It is about efficiencies. And we haven't begun to see it. And it's going to be very painful in our business. And certainly to the people at CNN making millions of dollars a year. Well, this is a cheery way to end our show. <laughs> but that does wrap it up for another month. It's time to go rebox my iPad. Thank you very much, Henry. Thank you for having me. And thank you, Felix. Thank you, Jeff. Media Talk USA is engineered and edited by Chad Bernhardt and produced by me. We record the studios of the City University of New York Graduate School of Journalism. 
Don't forget to add your comments to our blog at guardian.co.uk slash mediatalkusa. Make sure to subscribe there, too, so you don't miss next month's edition, presuming we make it, which will be uploaded in the first week or so of the month. I promise we will. I'm Jeff Jarvis. Thank you for listening. Media Talk.